All right, I'm on. I'm live. Um, <clears throat> for those of you guys who don't know me, my name is AD. I'm one of the elders here at Crosspoint. And today we're going to be continuing our study in the book of First John. We'll be in chapter 2. And I've titled this sermon, Redeemed for the Eternal. Redeemed for the Eternal. And the reason why I titled this sermon, Redeemed for the Eternal, is that there is something that God has intended for us to experience as a people of God. And those who are brought into relationship with him are able to contact what he has to offer. We are redeemed for the eternal. We are redeemed to proclaim the excellencies of him who has brought us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We're, we're saved to partake of something that's lasting, something that's not temporary. And because we are brought into relationship with him, our lives look different. We don't look like the world. We look different. And so when John begins this first chapter uh, of 1 John, what he's doing is that he feels the need to identify the differences between people who legitimately know God and the people who just claim that they know him, but their lives look totally different than what their profession of faith is. And so the distinction then is that it's more than what we say. It's more than just words, but it's how our words actually match up with how we live that really matters. It doesn't matter what you say. Anybody can say that they're saved, but their lifestyle reveals the truth of their statements. So for instance, a couple weeks ago, 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, it says, if we claim to have fellowship with him, if we claim to have koinonia, as Pastor Steve pointed out, yet we walk in darkness, we lie, and we don't practice the truth. Chapter 1, verse 8 says, if we say that we have no sin, you're deceived. Chapter 1, verse 10 says, if you claim that you have not sinned, you make God a liar and his word is not in us. Chapter 2, verse 4, we read this last week. If you claim to know him, but you don't keep your commandments, you're a liar. Chapter 2, verse 9. If we claim to be in the light and we hate our brother, we are in darkness. So it doesn't matter what you say, it matters what you do. And it matters if there's a correspondence between the verbal confession or profession and what the life actually produces. And so John is saying that there has to be a correspondence. The person who says that they are a believer, that they have koinonia, that they have fellowship with God, and if their life is contradictory, he's saying functionally, what your life is saying that is that knowing God intimately has no substantive change. There's no substantive impact if you claim to have a relationship with him, but your life remains the same. And so he says, you're a liar. You're a liar. There's no way you can have an intimate walk with God and your life remains the same. And so the next point is this, that those who walk intimately with God bear a distinctive fruit that corresponds with their profession. There are times where I don't even really honestly like to use the word Christian because that can be a word that's just kind of thrown out there. But really what I think that John is getting at in this book when he talks about knowing God and having fellowship with God, it's talking about an intimate relationship with someone. If you hang around someone long enough, 
you're going to start catching up on some, catching on to some of the phrases that they use, and there's an exchange that takes, takes place between you and that person. And so John is saying that if you walk intimately with God, you will bear a distinctive fruit that looks like godliness. It's just natural. It comes out of you. There will always be that distinctive fruit. And these signs not only show to the world who God is, but it also helps us to recognize that we are in the faith. Just like you would know a tree by its fruit, right? You're able to see the the apples on the tree, and you can tell that this is an apple tree, this is an orange tree, that there's a distinction between those different types of fruit. And so what is fruit? The fruit is the outward noticeable signs, the visible signs that correspond with an inward reality. Luke chapter 8, verse 18. As we go into this sermon, I want us to be very careful how we are hearing the message today. I trust that you will hear God's word, but listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 8, verse 18. He says, Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who, ha- who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. If we listen to the word of God today, and what you leave with today is, I'm bad, I'm horrible, I can't do anything right, I need to come up with some more stuff to do to make myself right, I'm going to commit to a plan to acting differently, you would have misheard everything that I'm saying today. So I want you to be very attentive to how you're hearing the message today. And if you're leaving with condemnation, and if you're leaving with, I can't do anything right, if you're leaving with, I need to come up with a plan to do things differently, pay attention to how your heart is receiving the message today. And what I hope that God would do as you're listening to my words and you're listening to God's voice that you would listen in this way. Good listening would be this. When you hear the word of God and you recognize that there is something that's missing in my life, there's something that's missing. You're able to identify that there's something that's missing that I lack. Number two, that there is a desire to want to change. But beyond just wanting to change, you also, number three, you recognize that you are inadequate to produce the change that you desire And fourthly, that you feel drawn to God because you can't do it yourself. So as we listen to this sermon today, please, I beg you, please listen to how your heart is hearing the sermon today. And you can't make your heart listen the way that I just described, where you you, you recognize that there's something wrong in you, that you desire a change, that you're inadequate to produce it, and that you're drawn to God. You can't make yourself do that. And so I pray that you would tune in to the Spirit of God as he is here today. And let's pray for that, Lord. Lord, we are so grateful that you are merciful and you are gracious and that you have redeemed us for an eternal purpose. God, for those that don't know you, God, I pray that they would see that and hear that today. I pray that you would give us ears to hear what you would have to say beyond my voice, beyond my points, that your voice would be heard and that there would be submission to your word today. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Redeemed for the eternal. We're going to be picking up in 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to start at verse 12. What is it that God desires for the redeemed to experience? John says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. First point. Those that walk intimately with God, with the Father, experience and they understand forgiveness. Those who walk intimately with the Father experience and understand forgiveness. What do you mean? The redeemed are the walking testimony of the display of God's grace. They accept the forgiveness of God knowing that the purpose is for his glory. Forgiveness does not center on us, the human being. We are the recipients of salvation. We're the beneficiaries of salvation, and we're the beneficiaries of forgiveness. But don't get it twisted. Forgiveness centers on God and what he is trying to proclaim about himself by giving his forgiveness to those who are undeserving. John chapter 9, verse 2 says, And his disciples, you may remember this story, there was a guy who was blind, and the disciples were like, why is this guy, oh, guy blind? Did he sin or did his parents sin? What did he do while he was blind? And John chapter 9 says, his disciples said to him, Rabbi, who sinned that this man or his parents that he was born blind? And verse 3 says, Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And likewise, the reason why God extends his forgiveness to us is so that his name and his glory and his might might be shown. Believers, we are the vehicle through which God declares his message to the world that he is gracious, that he's forgiving, that he's loving. And when we struggle to accept that forgiveness, and some of us do that, some of us struggle to accept the fact that we are forgiven. Understand when we struggle to accept the forgiveness of God, we are totally missing the message that God is trying to communicate. Because what we're saying to ourselves is that we are unworthy to receive this forgiveness. And God is saying, that's the very reason why I'm giving it to you. Because I want you to declare this message that, that God is mighty, that he is loving and he's compassionate to those who will turn their back on him. God's forgiveness is never about whether or not we're worthy to receive it. His forgiveness is about him proclaiming a message about himself by granting it to those who are undeserving. Are you guys, are you guys, are y'all with me today? Okay. I want to make sure we get that point, right? It's not about us. It's not about how deserving we feel like we are to get the forgiveness of God. And so if you're struggling to accept the fact that you are forgiven, God needs to do some work in your heart. Because not only do we miss the message that God wants to communicate, but we also distort the message of God because we feel like we are undeserving of that mercy and that forgiveness of God. How are you hearing that today, people? We were redeemed for the purpose of making the eternal God known through accepting his everlasting and eternal forgiveness. His forgiveness is forever. He doesn't ever retract it. It's always going to be there for us. 
And so know that you accepting the forgiveness of God is affirming the message that he is gracious, that he's loving, and that he's compassionate. Forgiveness centers on the person of God. And so he's writing to affirm that you guys have been forgiven. You understand what it means to be forgiven by God. And so he goes on in verse 13. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. So point number two is this, that those who walk intimately with God know him and radiate his light. They're thoroughly acquainted with who God is. He's affirming that you guys have had history with God. You've experienced him. And why is John so confident? Look at verse 8. It's because of their appearance. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I write to you, which is true in him and in you, in him being in Jesus. And later on in the book, he will clarify that this new commandment is the commandment that Jesus gave to love as he loved. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 13, he gives this command. John chapter 13, verse 34, it says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So this new commandment is that we should love as Jesus loved. Now, you remember in the Old Testament, it talked about the fact that we should love others as ourselves. And it's one thing for me to do that, but it's a totally different thing for me to love as Jesus loved. And so we're no longer using myself or ourselves as the standard for how we love one another, but we are loving in this new commandment because Christ redefines that when he loved. And so we being in contact with that eternal, us having a relationship with Jesus, he's saying not only is that commandment true in Jesus, but now it's true in you, verse 8, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And so what he's saying is that as we know God, as we fellowship with God, as we get to fellowship with him and get connected with him, we begin to take on that light and we begin to radiate so that the darkness begins to disappear. And this is the distinction beyond just mere profession that we're Christians, but that our lives actually radiate the light of Christ. And so being in the presence of God causes this light to radiate. You can't manufacture that. We can't muster up the energy to radiate the light of Christ. God has to do that in us. And so we as a redeemed people were redeemed to experience the joy of knowing the eternal God. And the byproduct of that is that we radiate the light of Christ in our lives. And so again, John is saying, not only do you understand forgiveness, but you know him. You know God. And I can see it in you. I see the light of Christ shining in you. And this is the purpose for which you have been redeemed. That goes beyond mere confession that you are a believer. Verse 13 continues. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. So the next point then is this. That those who walk intimately with God experience victory in the grit of practical, everyday living. Those who walk intimately with God experience in real time victory in the grit of practical, everyday living. That they experience victory. We, we, we experience victory. The allure of sin is not as strong. It fades as we are consumed 
with the presence of God. Our hearts aren't easily drawn to the things that we were once drawn to before. We're not as easily entertained by the world. We don't make accommodations for our sin. You know, we can make sin real easy for us, for ourselves, if we are really honest. Oops. You're more enticed by the presence of God than you are enticed by the presence of sin. And what I'm talking about is not this begrudging obedience, because sometimes, you know, it's like the kid, right? You, you put up a big piece of cake in front of him, then you have some vegetables, and you say, all right, I want you to choose which one is the right thing. And the kid is eating the vegetables, but really in his heart, he really is looking at that. He really wants a piece of that cake. And sometimes I think as Christians, that's our experience with God, where it's like all God has to offer is just, just this healthy stuff, and our hearts aren't truly wanting to be connected and obedient to God. We would rather sin, but we're doing the Christian thing because we're supposed to, and there is no joy in it. And God is saying, is that all I am to you? A plate of unseasoned vegetables, is that it? Is he desirable to you? Do you desire to be with God? He allows us to experience his overcoming over the desires of our flesh. And what I'm talking about, too, is is more than just doing the right thing. Overcoming is characterized not by just doing the right thing, but the godly desire that produces the actions. And so as the people of God, John is reminding these believers that you were redeemed to experience and display his eternal power over sin. It's yours. It's yours to access. And so he continues, I write to you children because you know the father, you know him. So now he's talking to the children. So he addresses fathers, he addresses young men, and he addresses children. And what I find amazing about this is that God makes himself knowable to all regardless of their stage of life. That God makes himself knowable, intimately knowable to all, regardless of their stage of life. Regardless of where you fall on the spectrum, and this should be an encouragement for us parents to know that our children can also have a deep relationship with God. Based on where they are, they can have a relationship with God, and that he makes himself knowable. And so verse 14, he reiterates all the things he just said. Again, he says, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And this strength that he's talking about here is not a byproduct of them being young men. This strength means boisterous. It means valiant. It has with it the idea of being able to weather a sustained attack, accessing resources that are beyond your means. Psalm 84 verse 5 says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, and whose hearts are the highways to Zion. They go from strength to strength, each one as they appear before God in Zion. This is where that strength comes from. It comes from a place of surrender. You are strong, and the word of God abides in you. 
The Word is living. It's bearing fruit. It's John 15 all over again, that as you abide in the vine, God allows you to produce fruit, and you have overcome the evil one. He allows you to be able to experience victory in the grit of everyday practical living. He changes your desires. You're not just doing the right thing, but he's actually changing your desires. He's actually giving you deeper desires for himself. And so John is reminding the believers that you have been redeemed to declare the eternal forgiveness of God, to be his advertisements in this world, to proclaim that message of eternal forgiveness. He's saying that you've been redeemed to experience this eternal joy of knowing him in relationship. And you've been redeemed so that you can experience victory over sin in your practical, everyday living. Why is this not the reality for some people who profess Christ? Why? What, what, what accounts for this lack of a significant change where people can profess to be believers, but their lives don't really reflect that truth? Divided affection. Divided affections. Look at verse 15. Do not agape the world or the things in the world. Do not agape the world or the things in the world. Do not have heart affection for the things of the world. Don't like the arrangement and don't desire what it affords you. You know, the world, the world has a certain system that it operates by. And as we function by the world, there are certain rewards that the, the, the world gives us because we've abided by those principles, right? Hustle, 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 no days off. Work hard, you'll get what you want. You get money, money can get you anything that you want. There's a way that the world operates. And what John is saying is that don't have a heart affection for this system. You were redeemed for something eternal. Don't desire what the, the, the world affords you. Why? Verse 15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's incompatible. The two cannot coexist. You can't have a deep, intimate relationship and desire for God and for the world. It, it can't happen. It's one or the other. My wife and I, we, we, we joke about this all the time. There was a period in time when, uh, when we were dating that she decided that she had had enough. And I'm thinking the same thing you're thinking. How in the world could she think that? Right? <laughs> That's what you're thinking, right? Yeah, right? <laughs> and so one day she asked me a very profound question. And some of you guys may know where I'm going with this, right? After the relationship is done, she said, so now that we're not uh, dating anymore, can we still be friends? And you know what I said, right? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And the point is this. When there is a relationship where there's exclusivity, there is no room for anything else. If you have a heart devotion for God, you cannot have a heart devotion for the world. It's either agape for God or agape for the world, folks. It's no in-between. How do you know if you have a love for God? How do you know if you have godly affection residing inside of you? 
ask yourself this question. Do you find his love filling? Like, is that the experience of your heart? Do you experience the love of God to be filling? Do you find yourself going to the world to top off because what you've gotten from God has not quite satisfied your appetite? If that's the case, his love is not being made complete in you and you're not experiencing this overcoming victory that he says, I have available to you. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, verse 16, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. The world provides great advertisement. The world kills it with its advertisement campaign. It affords you what feels good to the body, pleasure, all kinds of immorality, food, entertainment. It gives you what looks good to the eyes, the appearance, beauty, possessions. It affords one, a sense of pride, accomplishments, career, how much money I have in the bank, land, the list goes on. What feels good to the body, what looks good to the eyes, and it gives oneself a sense of personal pride. In verse 17, John says, and the world is passing away. Don't give your heart to it. She looks good. Don't give your heart to it. Don't give your heart to it. Don't allow your heart to get caught up in the stuff that's temporary. It's not lasting. The problem with the world, three things. The problem with the world's provisions, it cannot deliver lasting fulfillment. It, it can get you by, absolutely. It can get you by. It won't be lasting. Number two, it creates an appetite for lesser, a lesser affection. God is saying like, man, you were created to get something eternal. You were, you were created to feed off of something eternal. And what you're feeding on is going to kill you. It can't deliver. And it feeds a lesser appetite. And thirdly, it drains you of godly affection. The more that you love the world, it will sap you from godly affection. And hear me, God's people. God doesn't have, Satan doesn't have to get you into some big immoral sin. All he has to do is keep you entertained. He just got to keep you busy. That's all he has to do. And your life is sapped of godly affection. But whoever does the will of the Father abides forever. Again, doing the will, not saying the will of the Father. Whoever does the will of the Father abides forever. It's the people that, that their actions correspond with their profession. That is the proof that you are in relationship with God. What I want to do here, and I, I, I pray your heart is hearing not condemnation. I, I pray that you're listening well. But I have a couple of things that I want us to, to assess in our own lives because we really need to take an inventory of where our heart's affections are before God. And what I'm about to read, this does not necessarily mean that you are in sin. So please don't hear that. But as I read these five things, I want you to assess where your heart affections are today. First of all, dominant daily motivational drives. 
What is it that's motivating you on a day-to-day basis? What do you go to sleep thinking about? What do you wake up thinking about? What is it that's driving you? What is it that's consuming your mental thoughts on a day-to-day basis? Number two, things turn to for relief. Where do I tend to go? What is my release valve? Where is my happy place? Number three, where am I finding my deepest fulfillment? Where where am I most satisfied? What what, what are the things that I do? Where, Where is that place? Four, using God to get what the world offers. And this pretty much deals with the question of, now that I found Jesus, what else do I want? What is that? What is that? Number five, finding sin more enticing than Jesus. What is it that you find calling you? When no one else is around, if something is calling you, what is that? What is that? How are you hearing today? God's people. I pray that you're not hearing condemnation. I I pray that you're hearing God saying that there may be things that may not necessarily be outright sin, but it's sapping you of your affection for me. And he's saying, I have so much more to offer you. I have so much more to offer you than begrudging obedience. We were redeemed to experience the eternal. And my prayer today is that we would not be a people that profess mere fellowship with God, but functionally our lives display affection for the world. Today I want to close with the third verse of a song written by James Weldon Johnson, who was most noted for his song, lift every voice and sing. And in this song, he describes an oppressed people who were broken and who God delivered through the storm. And who he he writes from the perspective of these people knowing God and having this relationship with God, but that relationship is at risk of straying because of the influence of the world. And it goes, God of our weary years, God of our silent tears, thou who has brought us thus far on the way, thou who has by thy might led us into the light, keep us forever in the path, we pray. Lest our feet stray from the places our God Where we met thee. Lest our heart, drunk with the wine of the world, we forget thee. Shadowed beneath thy hand, may we forever stand. True to our God, true to our native land. God's people, the world has nothing for us. And our eternal place is with him. 
And God has redeemed us so that we could experience the eternal, not just the by and by of a future eternity in heaven, but God is saying, I want you to be the testimony, the advertisement of what heaven is like here on earth. And we can't do that if our heart's affection is for the world. We can't do it. We're proclaiming the wrong message. The world offers you the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. God doesn't give you what the world what the world gives you. He doesn't give you what appeals to the flesh, but he offers the joy of his presence and the radiance of his light. He doesn't give you the appearance of the eyes and what's appealing to the eyes, but what God does give you is the security of acceptance because of his unconditional forgiveness. And he doesn't give you the pride of life, but what he has done is that he has achieved the greatest victory by conquering death and sin, and he says you can access that victory when you're in relationship with me. God has an answer to what the world offers. And I pray that that would be our experience.